the New Moon Crew. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA announced the four people heading to the moon on a lunar flyby mission as early as next year, launching from Kennedy Space Center. The three U.S. astronauts and one Canadian astronaut will take the Orion spacecraft on a 10-day mission to the moon and back, paving the way for the following mission, which aims to land humans on the surface. We'll hear about this crew and its significance in NASA's ambitious plan to return to the moon with a diverse group of people. Then, from the retirement of the space station to the growing problems of space debris, there's a lot going on up there. We'll talk with retired NASA astronaut Eileen Collins about the latest space news headlines. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. NASA announced the next crew heading to the moon, three U.S. astronauts and one from Canada. NASA's Reed Wiseman, Victor Glover, Christina Cook, and Canada's Jeremy Hansen will be the first humans to return to the moon in more than half a century. Mission specialist Christina Cook spent 328 days in space and conducted the first all-woman spacewalk. She'll become the first woman to venture to the moon. The one thing I'm most excited about is that we are going to carry your excitement, your aspirations, your dreams with us on this mission. Artemis II, your mission. Mission pilot Victor Glover spent 167 days in space, becoming the first black astronaut to live and work on the International Space Station. And he'll soon become the first person of color to travel to the moon. We need to celebrate this moment in human history because Artemis II is more than a mission to the moon and back. It's more than a mission that has to happen before we send people to the surface of the moon. It is the next step on the journey that gets humanity to Mars. Mission specialist Jeremy Hansen will become the first Canadian on a mission to the moon. The crew is commanded by Reed Weissman, who spent 165 days in space. He was a naval aviator and served as chief of NASA's astronaut office. It's a milestone moment for the agency. Here to talk more about the mission and the crew is Laura Forsick, a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on again. Laura, we have a crew. <laughs> this, we have a crew. It's real. This is, this is a big moment, right? It is huge. It is one of those moments where we will look back and say history was made. Because this crew will go farther than humanity has gone in half a century. And I am so excited for the day to watch them blast off to the moon. Let's talk about the makeup of this crew. Um, we've got a woman. We've got a person of color. We have an uh, international participant in a Canadian space agency, astronaut. I mean, this is what NASA had had promised, right? This, this is a diverse crew and, and very different from the crew of the Apollo era. It is. It's a whole new era of spaceflight where we are seeing more participation of what humanity truly looks like, as well as America not going alone. We have Artemis partners. It'll start out with one Canadian, and I'm sure it will uh, include European astronauts, Japanese astronauts, and other Artemis partners. Um, and I am excited to see the first woman head off to the moon. Uh, we have never had a woman go farther than low Earth orbit. So I am really, truly excited to see the diversity of this crew and to see how they bond together. I'm also excited to see um, a rookie on board. I didn't think they would do that. Let's talk a bit about what we know about the crew, starting with um, uh, the first woman to to uh, head to 
the lunar vicinity. Um, she is no stranger to breaking records and and crossing milestones. Christina Cook, um, tell us about this pick. Christina Cook has a long history of spaceflight. She's one of the newer astronauts, but she was part of um, one of the recent crews to the International Space Station where she did um, some extracurricular activities, EVAs, a spacewalk. She was actually part of that first all-woman spacewalk. Um, so she has a plethora of experience in low Earth orbit that she will bring to this crew. Uh, another on this mission, Victor Glover, uh, became the first uh, black astronaut for an extended stay on the space station. What do you think about this pick as well? Yeah, he actually served on a SpaceX crew, Crew One. And so he has an experience that not many astronauts have serving on a uh, a commercial craft. And I think that's important because it brings about a different perspective um, now, of course, SpaceX operated very closely with NASA, but I think that going forward, NASA will have to learn to operate in ways that the commercial industry has brought on, which is, you know, a little bit quicker and a little bit more um, able to adapt. And so I think that having Victor Greville on as pilot, I think will bring that kind of perspective to the Artemis II crew. Um, so so we also have Reed Weissman from NASA and, and Jeremy Hansen um, from uh, the Canadian Space Agency, as we mentioned. Tell us a bit about Artemis II, Laura. Um, this is a, a, the mission will not be going to the surface of the moon, but important nonetheless, right? What do we know about the current mission objectives and, and really why this is so important to, to kind of future Artemis missions to come? People might remember Artemis One blasting off in November of last year, and that was uncrewed, but that was a practice mission to make sure that the SLS rocket and the Orion capsule were able to operate safely for the Artemis II crew, which is the first one that will have this crew on board and actual people going in the vicinity of the moon. And it will not land. So Artemis Three is the mission that will land on the surface of the moon, the first one since 1972. This mission... Um, sort of practices for that. It makes sure that humanity can get in the vicinity of the moon. It tests the radiation environment. It does some great science while it's there. So it's really a good practice mission because we haven't gone this far in, like I said, half a century. In fact, no one from the Artemis troop, no one from the Artemis II crew was alive during the Apollo era. And you and I weren't alive then either. So this is something that a lot of the old Apollo era flight controllers and, and engineers and, and all of the people who were involved in Apollo, a lot of them are either retired or deceased. And so NASA has to relearn a lot. So Artemis II is that practice, the way that NASA can relearn before it lands on the surface of the moon. I remember talking with uh, Christina Cook a few months ago, and she was saying that they were actually using the Apollo transcripts from the mission to build their training out for the, the Artemis missions as well, which I thought was a really interesting and, and cool way to kind of, you know, take what we've learned from the past. But it really is, as you mentioned, a brand new chapter in lunar exploration. None of these people were alive back then, and they're going to be following in the footsteps of, of the folks that did. Exactly. And we have so much to learn from what already was accomplished with Apollo, but we also have so much to take on. It's, it's standing on the shoulders of giants, that phrase that we hear so often. That's literally what we're doing. I mean, not literally, but we truly are taking the accomplishments of the Apollo era and adding on to it. So this is the continuation that we all wanted to see. Well, 
people who were alive during the Apollo era, they wanted to see this continuation. They wanted to see humanity go further and more of humanity, not just NASA, not just the the test pilots who were eligible during the Apollo era to be astronauts, but more of humanity represented and a partnership of humanity. So Canadian astronaut joining a NASA crew, as well as future astronauts from Europe and Japan and elsewhere. And so I really think that this is going to be a really good continuation of humanity going out beyond Earth orbit, beyond our, our origin um, and out into the solar system where we belong. At, at the announcement um, yesterday, Christina Cook mentioned that, you know, she was take she was excited, uh, which is no surprise, uh, but she was also taking the excitement of others with her. Um, at the announcement, they had some school children um, in the audience. And obviously, there's a lot of interest in this coming off of Artemis One, which launched just a few months ago. Do you foresee this crew as as having a lot of influence and building excitement for lunar exploration and, and really being an inspiration for the next generation of people to get into this industry. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, they will be. I don't think most people in the general public know about Artemis yet, but they will. And the closer we get to launching people on board, that's when the public will get excited. You know, your audience uh, in the, the general Central Florida area might be more aware than most people around the world or even most people in the United States. But people get excited when they see other people doing adventures, breaking new ground, going where we've never gone before. And I think once we get closer to launching Artemis 2, the general public will really get behind it and really get really excited. We have to remember that even during the Apollo era, Apollo wasn't very popular in its time. It was only after it achieved its accomplishments that it became very, very successful and popular. And I think we might see the same thing where leading up to Artemis II and Artemis III, we might see uh, a little bit of um, apathy or even backlash. But I think once NASA is able to accomplish these goals and once the international partnership is able to accomplish the goal of returning humans back on the moon and returning them sustainably to go on beyond Mars and beyond, I think that the public will get very excited. Laura Forsick is a space policy analyst and consultant in the space industry. She's also here for every major Artemis milestone. So thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Laura. Always a pleasure. Let's go to the moon. Still to come, a conversation with Eileen Collins, a former NASA astronaut and first woman to serve as a space shuttle commander. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. From the retirement of the space station to growing problems of space debris, there's a lot going on up there. Here to talk about the latest space news headlines is Eileen Collins, a retired NASA astronaut who was the first woman to command a space shuttle mission. Her book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission, is now out in paperback. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Well, it's great to talk with you. Yes, well, as as you and I both know, there's there's quite a bit of stuff going on uh, when it comes to space news, and um, it's not very often I get to talk with a former astronaut on this show. So let's dive into some of these big stories that are happening. Um, the first thing is um, last week on the show we we talked about the uh, the president's budget proposal, and within this budget proposal was 183 million dollars to develop a tug to help deorbit the International Space Station. Um, I think to me this is kind of the the 
piece that the space station is coming to an end if, if they're coming up with, with ways to get it out of orbit. But I mean, what's your first reaction when, when seeing something like this in a budget proposal? Well, my first reaction is we were talking about deorbiting the space station in 2024. Now, that was 10 years ago. So I'm happy to see that NASA extended it to 2028, and then they extended it again to 2030. And there's a variety of things that they look at there. But, you know, eventually the space station will have to come down. I remember the uh, space, I'm sorry, the Skylab. Actually, uh, there was no space tug on that. And so it was all over the news is back, I think, in the 1970s. Skylab is falling. You know, where's it going to fall? It might fall in your hometown. So I think that this is something that NASA has to do. Um, the Russians brought down their Mir space station in 1999, and they, they crashed it in the South Pacific Ocean. So it, because the space station is so big, we're going to have to do a controlled deorbit. So I knew this was coming. I don't think I was quite as surprised about it as many people were. And I do think that there's a possibility that, but not, not likely, but a possibility that someone else, maybe a commercial company, may want to go in and take over the space station. But I think really the smaller space stations are going to be uh, the way to go in the future because they'll be more economically uh, viable. Mm -hmm. I mean, you said you were ready for this, but I mean, as as one of the few people who has actually visited the space station, I mean, is this still kind of a, a bittersweet moment in in kind of this chapter of, of human space exploration? Yes, it's definitely a bittersweet moment. Um, I was on the space station in 2005. Uh, it has been uh, built out much more since then. Uh, more modules have been added. And I think what it's is the National Laboratory, what it's contributed to research and, you know, to our country and countries around the world has been incredible. And I think we know that it's a good investment and we need to continue to build them, just not quite as big. But I might add that I saw the space shuttles retired. I saw the loss of two space shuttles. And back when I was in the Air Force, I saw my operational aircraft, the C-141, be retired. So I know that we have to focus on the future and, you know, we, we'll remember the past, we'll remember, um, you know, I think everything that we learned from those missions, but I do believe we need to move on. What does that moving on look like, Eileen? I know, I know NASA's got plans to um, have commercial companies fill the gaps left by, by the retirement of the International Space Station. Um, you know, is, is that the right path forward? And and what are some of the challenges that may lie ahead for these commercial companies that are trying to fill this void left by the International Space Station, which is up in space for decades and, and has, uh, you know, accomplished so many great things? Right. Well, I 100% believe in the model that we're using, which is giving the private companies, or you could say commercial company or private company, giving them a leadership role. So they but, you know, for example, uh, own and operate the spacecraft as opposed to the past where NASA, for example, NASA owned and operated the space shuttle as we do the space station right now. But the future in low Earth orbit will, for human spaceflight, will be smaller space stations owned by the private companies, and then NASA will rent space on board. And that's the uh, similar model that we will be using on the moon. There's something called the CLIPS program where, uh, you know, small robotic payloads are uh, being funded by NASA. They're actually owned and operated by the private companies, and they are landing on the moon to do a variety of research. And the lander for the Artemis program will be owned and operated by SpaceX, or there's also another company that's competing for that that we don't know yet. The one, I want to say, vestige of the past that NASA still owns is the rocket that will get us there, which is the Space Launch System. That's still owned by NASA and the American people. But, you know, at some point in the future, you know, the launch vehicle will, will also be commercial. 
I don't know when that will happen. But I think you mentioned that what are the challenges and what are the you know the good things about it. I think it's mostly good. We can go much faster by getting private industry involved. And if, you know, if they can make a profit, they're going to be there. And NASA will be the catalyst to go out and do the things that private industry does not want to do. Um, the challenge will be safety and, of course, mission success. I believe these private companies can definitely do these missions safely. They know if they have an accident, they'll completely lose their program. As we almost lost the space shuttle after uh, the last uh, Columbia accident, they don't want to have an accident, so they're motivated to keep flying safely. And to, you know, and they want to they want to have a smooth mission. They want customers, and they want to make a profit. It also opens up access to space for others, including other retired astronauts. Your your uh, astronaut colleagues have have made trips uh, with these commercial companies. Uh, it begs the question. May we find you on another mission to the International Space Station or possibly one of these space stations? Well, you know, I think about that uh, not a lot, but I think about it occasionally. I haven't totally cut out the opportunity to fly in space again someday. I think about John Glenn's flight, which was around 19, I think it was 1998. And he was, I forgot how, he was in his 70s. I forgot how old he was. But he uh, did a fantastic job. And I, I think about, I mean, he was at, he actually performed at peak level at his age. And of course, John Glenn wasn't exactly the representative of the average American at that age. I mean, he was in really very good shape. But I think maybe someday they'll want an old lady to fly in space, you know, decades from now when I'll, I'll be a, I wouldn't say front of the line volunteer. <laughs> I really enjoyed all my missions. I mean, being a human spaceflight, I believe, will be hugely successful on the tourist side because once, you know, people start talking about the wonderful experience they had, the word's going to get around and more people are going to want to do it. For us astronauts, we work all the time. You know, we can't really go up there and just like have a good time because we're, we have a mission, we're always working. But there will be activities that people can do in space, uh, you know, looking out the window, obviously, but we're going to invent things like, you know, sports and, you know, things that you can do microgravity, you know, gymnastics and uh, just kind of, you know, getting out of your, I want to say the, we're captive here on the surface of the earth where our feet are stuck to the ground and gravity just, you know, it, it overwhelms everything that we do down here. And when you get up in space and you don't have gravity anymore, it really opens up a whole new uh, opportunity to have a great human experience. I look forward to that. And I, I do think about that. And if they want to send a journalist up there, I have, I have raised my hand, uh, quite <laughs> optimistically there. So um, let's chat about another issue happening in space. You, you mentioned that, you know, the reason why NASA wants to control um, the decommissioning and, and um, deorbiting of the International Space Station is, is because it doesn't want it to turn into a piece of space junk like Skylab. But um, space junk is, is a real concern um, to scientists, engineers, astronomers, um, how bad is it and 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 why should regular people like myself be concerned about the space debris issue i think it is our leading issue space junk space debris uh even space traffic management is our leading issue right now i think that well i can tell you for sure my last mission on the space station our number one risk to loss of vehicle loss of crew and vehicle was getting hit by a piece of space junk that couldn't be tracked. 
And our radars can track something, you know, bigger than about the size of a baseball. And you can move the space station out of the way. But if there's a piece of space junk, you know, smaller than that, it could hit us. It could take out a cooling system. I mean, in highly unlikely that it could hit a person, but those are things that we're concerned about. You know, why should the everyday person be concerned? I think this is a future issue for the everyday person. If we want to be launching anything into space, we're going to be launching through a debris field and we're going to be operating in a debris field. Also, I mean, and you could have a collision. And also these objects will be coming back into the atmosphere. You see in the news that, oh, here comes a, you know, there was one just uh, recently of uh, arid Chinese rocket was coming back and I hadn't heard about it ahead of time. And fortunately it burned up before it hit the ground. So, you know, these people will be seeing these more in the uh, sky day and night. And there's a possibility that larger ones could actually hit the surface. Um, I'm not worried as much about hitting the surface as I am about a collision in orbit. And when you have a collision, you create many, many more smaller pieces of junk that goes in every direction, up, down, right, left. It goes out of plane. And there's no, we don't have any way to clean it up. So you can imagine 10, 20 years from now, you're, you know, how are we going to operate in space with all this junk up there? Mm-hmm. What is the solution? I mean, we don't have a way to clean it up, but, you know, is the solution, you know, mitigating the risk before it, it becomes a concern, like limiting the amount of launches or, or having policy in place to take care of, you know, uncontrollable pieces of, of spacecraft? Like, how do we even go about fixing such a colossal problem? Yeah, well, there's a lot of work going on internationally with that right now, and we do need international cooperation. So one of the first things you can do is it, when you design the satellite, design it so, you know, it, it won't explode late in its lifetime, you know, so the tank, like some of these old Soviet uh, satellites will just, they'll just explode, you know, for whatever reason, the pressure builds up in the tank. And you can design a satellite uh, to prevent that kind of thing from happening and also design it to bring it down at the end of its life or design it so it can be refueled and, or refurbished. So part of it is in the design. The other part is getting rid of the garbage that's up there right now. So there's some, and this is not a like common sense problem with an easy answer. So there's people around the world, engineers working on solutions, you know, things like lasers, magnets. Um, you know, some people have talked about, you know, let's get a net and sweep it all up. You know, that that's not really possible because space is just so big. But, you know, some of the op- options like magnets and lasers, uh, you can look those up and read about them. Uh, they're kind of in their infancy as far as the technology, but I think that there's some uh, promising ideas there. And I'm very happy that people are working on it. And, and again, when I was a advisor to the National Space Council, you know, back, you know, one to four years ago, that was one of our leading issues is we, we've got to get a cooperation through, you know, companies and different countries on you know, preventing this problem from getting any worse. Mm-hmm. I want to turn to your book. Um, the paperback is now out. The book is Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission. Um, you know, since you, that first mission, there have been 70 some women who have gone to space. Um, and, and now we know that the Artemis program, they have specifically said the first woman will be landing on the moon in the next few years. Um, Looking forward, you know, 
how does that make you feel as 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 someone who did crack that that glass ceiling for for women to follow in your footsteps, knowing that a woman is going to be on the moon very soon? Well, well, I'm really excited about this entire program. You know, man or woman, I'm happy to see that women are are uh, fully involved in the space program that uh, like it was back in the 1960s and 70s but today we have women working everywhere you know on the ground and in in the air in the space program and, and that's great but i think if you look back in time you know the women that were role models for me were the women air force service pilots that flew in world war ii and also the mercury 13 women that went through the mercury testing of you know way back in 1960. So I believe that uh, us women that flew in the shuttle era and even in the space and now in the space station era are you're just carrying on the tradition of you know women in space and the next step will be to have a woman on the moon and you know I think eventually a woman on Mars and, you know I think all this is great but you know I I say humanity and people and I wrote the book because I want to inspire young women but I also want to inspire young men to look at, you know, I say to the stars, you know, to kind of decide, you know, what are their stars, you know, what can they reach for? And as you read the book, you know, I talk about, you know, not just my four missions and my time in the Air Force, but I talk about mistakes that I made and, and choices that I made that maybe, you know, I could have made a better choice. And, you know, and I didn't grow up in a, in a privileged household. You know, my family had uh, issues. We were on welfare. We were on food stamps for a period of time. And I just want young people to read the book and say, you know, it doesn't matter what I was handed at birth or what things happened to me in my childhood. I can still, I'm in the United States of America or whatever country you're in that allows people to go into space. I can have a dream and I can reach for that dream. And so, you know, that was the other reason I wrote the book, not just to document my missions, but to uh, inspire people to, you know, reach for the stars. Eileen, what what advice do you have for um, for young people who who may be listening to this or or, or thinking about wanting to follow in, in your footsteps or the footsteps of these next moonwalking astronauts that we're going to see this decade? What 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 do you have to offer to? Well, I would like to encourage young people to read books. Um, the way the reason I got interested in flying in the first place was I, I was at the library and I found books on airplanes. And I started reading about, yeah, what makes an airplane fly, you know, what airplanes are. But I also read stories about explorers that flew airplanes around the world. And it got me interested in, you know, I wanted to fly. I wanted to go places, uh, you know, that I had never been, that maybe I wouldn't otherwise see, maybe even places where no one else has been before. And I think that's what led me into the space program. So, you know, I encourage young people to, to read books. Uh, social media is okay. I think that, you know, you, you need to kind of limit your time on there. Spend a little bit of time reading books. You can even take pictures of the books you read and post that on social media. But, you know, read a variety of fiction, nonfiction. And the, some of those young people out there listening are are, are good readers and they can read uh, well ahead of their grade level. So challenge yourself also. We speak with Eileen Collins. She's a retired NASA astronaut, was the first female shuttle commander her book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission is out in paperback. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the questions. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. we got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. 
Make a contribution to this show and the many others here on 90.7 WMFE News at WMFE.org. Just hit the big red donate button. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.